0: Hello, and welcome back to the JPO podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital in beautiful uptown New Orleans. This is the first episode in a special series covering the 2020 POSNA annual meeting. As you are probably aware, the meeting was unfortunately canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. As you also likely know, the meeting is moving ahead online in a virtual form, including recorded presentations by all of the scheduled presenters. On this podcast, we'll be supplementing those presentations by hosting moderators from the meeting, along with the authors they chose to highlight as part of this series we're calling, quote-unquote, Best of POSNA 2020. Today, we start things off with abstracts and authors from the meeting's session covering the POSNA Quality, Safety, and Value Initiative. So, let's go to the session. Welcome to the POSNA 2020 Annual Meeting Discussion Section for the QSVI Group Session. I am very happy to be joined by the moderators of this session, Dr. Alfred Mansour from UT Health in Houston and Dr. Julie Samora from Nationwide Children's. We are also fortunate to be joined by several authors with whom we'll be discussing their work. I'll introduce them as we go. To start things off, we've got a randomized controlled trial entitled Virtual Reality to Reduce Pain and Anxiety in the Pediatric Orthopedic Outpatient Setting. I'm very happy to say we're joined by senior author Kishore Mopuri from British Columbia Children's Hospital in Vancouver. In this study, the authors found that virtual reality reduced anxiety during common outpatient procedures like cast and pin removal. There were also trends toward reduced pain and faster procedures.
1: All right, great. This is Alfred Mansour. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Malkori. I appreciate your presentation. I, I think that's a great idea. And certainly in our digital age and the younger surgeons, this this is pretty intuitive. I guess the, the question for us is what what's the typical cost of implementation kind of in the fashion you suggested? Is that something that's reasonable to get in your clinics or is that a, a big commitment?
2: Yeah, I think it's fairly simple. There is a lot of platforms that are out there that are inexpensive. This one that we used is open source. Each headset and for you to get one of these was like a 1000 or $1,200 for us. And if your institution buys a license, then you can use for a wide variety of things. So we teamed up with our digital lab that was testing something similar for MRIs, for MRI simulation. So we just piggybacked on that. But honestly, in terms of saving anxiety for these children, in terms of providing satisfaction for their care, I think it's a very small investment. Great. And, and
1: to follow that, I noticed on the image on the, on the presentation, the child had a face cover and was using a wand type device. Did that include a, a headphone for noise reduction from, from like
2: the cast saw or was it just visual distraction? Right. We did actually provide the cast saw kind of headphones. And if people wanted to use their own headphones connected to the VR for the game, so we did we did provide that as well. So we gave them an option.
3: So thank you for this study. I think this has real potential. Are you using this pretty much for all of your castle removals, pin pullings, that type of thing? Is it that common now in your clinic?
2: So we did that as a part of this research study. And we have a second one that's actually up and running. We're working through how to standardize that and have that in the clinic so it does add time because somebody needs to give them and tell them about the game and stuff like that so as long as we did the study our research assistants or coordinators did that so now we're working on how to implement it in the clinic we've shown that through a qiqa that this in fact increased satisfaction decreases anxiety there's less talking time trying to explain all of this. Often we tell them, hey, we're going to take your cast off. Do you want to play this game and off we went. So I think one of the things that we all need to work out as we implement this is who is going to work with them on that? Do you have someone like our cast techs would tell you, I just want to take the cast off and I, I can't be bothered about getting them and putting the headset and explaining all of this to them. So that's what we're working through where we can get somebody from child life to come and be there in the clinic on a regular basis to do that. And we haven't worked that out yet. But we could do that as a part of research study. So we're designing another research study while we figure out the hospital figures are this actually cost effective and we need to have someone in the clinic to be able to do that. Great work.
1: Yeah, I guess final final wrinkle is the whole COVID crisis and what that changes with the ability to swap this equipment out to different kids and whatnot. It, was that affected at all in, in your current implementation process? That is a great
2: point. So we figured out pre-COVID way of cleaning and also there are liners that have come up with these kind of headsets that you can use. And we were thinking about, gee, what's the cost of that? How are we going to do that? It's not that expensive, but, you know, we were factoring that. But post-COVID, all bets are off. So we really now need to think about for everything that we do, the sterilization procedure to, you know, how do we clean this and how do we use these kind of devices? So uh, we don't have an answer as yet. And I'm just talking to people that use this routinely and they have all put those on hold right now. Nobody is giving children this as a distraction maneuver, whether it's an MRI suite or whatever. So we definitely need to figure that out.
0: Well, that's great. Dr. Mopari, if I can butt in with one question, I'm always curious when I hear about these virtual reality uh, interventions. Did you play the game?
2: So I, you know, honestly, I did, I did play the game myself, but these kids, most of the kids, I got the lowest score compared to <laughs> probably even a five-year-old. So <laughs> And that also tells you probably why, and I'm sure there's a strong correlation for those of you that are a lot younger than me in terms of playing video games and your scope skills. And I, I don't <laughs> do scopes anymore because, you know, I make everybody in the room busy if I try to do a scope. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: well, what did it look like? What were you doing in the game?
2: You know, it, it's actually a simple one that you, you basically point and shoot and you have to hit as many targets as you can. And boy, I tell you, even these kids that never played, you you tell them. They want to have one test run and they play. And as I said, the 5 year old score was a lot better than mine. So (laughs) you can only imagine.
0: Well, thank you very much. Next, we are going to move on to an article entitled, A Negative Workplace Culture is Associated with Burnout in Pediatric Orthopedic Surgeons. We are fortunate to be joined by lead author, Dr. Cordelia Carter from NYU. In this study, the author sent an online survey to positive members and 40% reported a negative workplace culture, which was defined as experiencing either discrimination, bullying, sexual harassment, or other harassment. There was a very strong association between this kind of negative culture and burnout. Unfortunately, women were more likely to report both burnout and a negative culture at work.
3: Dr. Carter, uh, you've been a leader, both in the Women's Advisory Board as well as the Diversity Advisory Board, both of which have tackled this workplace environment issue. So thank you for all your work in this area. Uh, just curious, were you surprised that 40% of POSNA members suffered from burnout? Has We think we pretty much have a great lifestyle. Or was this a surprising finding? Thank you for the question. And I would say, uh, first,
4: Julie just did herself uh, a disservice because she has really partnered with me in a lot of this work, both for POSNA and for the Academy. It's really been a collaborative effort. And what I would say is, you know, I think your question is, am I surprised that so many POSNA members still reported experiencing a negative behavior and still experiencing burnout? And the truth is, in terms of burnout, POSNA members are similar to other physicians. We're similar to other orthopedists, as well as uh, pediatricians, the ones who. Sort of look most like us, but in terms of experiencing a negative workplace culture, we're actually doing uh, better than the numbers that the Academy reported for the larger, you know, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. The number reported there for this experience was like 66%. And similarly, when we look worldwide, the study that we did was based on the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, and their report was more than 40% and more close to 50%. So to me, this says, well, we still have work to do because 40% of our members are experiencing a negative behavior in the workplace, but actually we are doing better than um, some of our brethren. And so what do you think
3: are next steps to improve the workplace
4: culture? This study has been part of a broader work through the Posna Wellness Committee uh, the first part of which we did last year, which was just looking at levels of burnout amongst POSNA members. And then this one we said, well, are there uh, intangibles? Are there parts of, are th- is there behavior in the workplace that we can look at that is contributing to burnout? Because then that's a point where we can effect change potentially. So I think going forward, you know, one way we can do that is education and outreach. Actually, I think it's making it safer and a lot more transparent to report behaviors like this. And that's something that's been done by actually by the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons again, had an entire program called Operating with Respect that came from their findings with their own uh, membership. And actually, similarly, the British Orthopedic Trainees Association, uh, when they queried their members, they found that so many of them had experienced bullying in the workplace that they've got a, a new program called Hammer It Out that specifically targeted towards decreasing bullying in the orthopedic workplace. But I think also, you know, we looked at the intangibles, but I think there may be some tangible things that we can change too through the wellness committee and then through POSNA as a larger entity. And I think that'll hopefully be like one of the next things that we do is to talk to our membership about what is it like in your workplace? Do you get paid to be on call? Do you have a dedicated trauma room? You know, some of the things that actually just make up our day-to-day life, but are so variable amongst our membership, but maybe if we put together through advocacy or through our fellowship committee, a document that says, you know, when you are going to negotiate a contract, these are the things that are, that POSNA says are best practices for a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Then maybe we can also change some of the tangibles as well as working to change the culture and the
3: intangibles. Great. Thank you.
1: Appreciate this. I think it's really important to talk about culture. And I think it's important that this study talks about taking care of people who take care of the people we want to treat. And I think that it shouldn't be at our own sacrifice of ourselves or our family. And I, and I think that this is obviously an important topic. One question is, and, and is a limitation in lots of surveys, with a response rate of 19%, can we extrapolate these results to represent the entire POSNA membership? Or is this more of an engaged subset? And how do we work through that?
4: I think that's a great question. A response rate of nineteen point six percent is low, although it is not abysmally low compared to what we generally get. Which you know, if you talk to Rick Schwinn, is is in the mid to low twenties, and so it's lower than than normal, but it's not terrible. For those of you who took the survey, because it went to the entire membership, it was an onerous survey and we knew that, you know, going into it, it was as long as 20 minutes to do it, uh, you know, in its entirety. And it was like 70 questions. And so we recognized that a priori that we were going to have a lower response rate than we did to the study we did last year where actually 47% of POSNA members responded to the survey of of whether or not they were experiencing burnout. So that said, you know, can we extrapolate our findings from this new survey to the larger group? Well, what's interesting is last year we got a response rate, like I said, approaching 50% and almost 40% said they experienced burnout. It was 38%. And this new study while the response rate was low, the, the percentage that was reporting burnout was very similar. It was 37%. And then when we looked at, at the gender and age of the respondents, it actually pretty closely mirrored that of the greater POSNA membership. And so while it is admittedly imperfect, I do think it's fair to extrapolate it to the larger group.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Carter. This is certainly an area where we need to improve as a field. And uh, thank you for being one of the leaders in that effort. Next up, we've got an article entitled Refilling Opioid Prescriptions After Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery, Who is at Risk for Opioid Seeking Behavior? We are joined by author Ishan Swarup, who is a faculty member at UCSF. In this study, the authors used their state's drug monitoring program, which was Pennsylvania, to determine which patients attained and filled additional opioid prescriptions within six months after inpatient surgery. The only independent predictor was the amount of opioids administered in the hospital. So, the authors recommend multimodal pain regimens after surgery to reduce narcotic use.
1: All right, Dr. Swaroop, appreciate you, you being here. Clearly a hot topic in our society and certainly uh, looking for avenues to minimize opioid use. First question, you mentioned in your inclu- exclusion criteria prior opioid use. Uh, do you believe that that may actually be a risk factor uh, for use and that those patients may have been important? So, why, why exclude them?
5: That's a, great, that's a great question. Um, you know, the reason we chose to exclude them in this study was because we wanted to kind of look at an opioid-naive population with the assumption that the majority of pediatric patients that undergo elective surgery or even uh, non-elective surgery are opioid-naive. And so to have kind of the cleanest cohort that we could potentially use to generalize the findings to other populations, uh, we decided to do that. But you're absolutely right. I, I think this question, whether to include them, would be different. And, and maybe the results may be different for, for populations that have had opioid use in the past.
1: So, Dr. Swaroop, in your presentation, you used the term seeking, and I think it implied that it could be interchangeable with the word needing, which uh, seems to put a negative connotation on using opioids for pain relief. I think we have to be careful with uh, assuming that if a patient needs a refill, that they're seeking painkillers. And my question really is, if we're, if we're truly going to understand this. I think we need a very homogenous surgical cohort. And so to me, the, the larger surgeries, pelvis, spine, may require more post-op pain medicine. And so my question would be, what number of patients still need opioids three months? Is there a way to really drill down to look at inpatient procedures versus outpatient procedures and, and trying to find those risk factors? Because the ones that required more pain medicine, they received about three times as much as an inpatient, yet at discharge, they had the similar number of pills. So it would make sense that these were bigger procedures, but they were still given the same pills on discharge.
5: You bring up some really important points. I think one is it would be, you know, ideal to take something like this, which is kind of a a 30,000-foot view, a database type of study and associate that with more patient-level data that you could theoretically get from a smaller cohort of patients, whether it's for focusing on hip preservation patients or focusing on fine patients, whatever it may be. And so to kind of complement that and to really figure out at what time point do patients you know, need a refill or you know, is there a way to do that? And, and we can provide some general broad strokes with the data that we have. For example, in this cohort, 2% of patients that did seek a refill, more than half of them were done within the first month after their discharge. So a lot of them are done early, even though we looked at a full six months after surgery. And additionally, like you said, the study highlights a few things, you know, in our efforts to standardize the way we prescribe narcotics in orthopedic surgery, it kind of underscores the whole idea that one size doesn't necessarily fit all. If we're prescribing the same number of pills to everybody, clearly it's it's okay for some, but not for everyone. So it highlights the importance of looking at patient factors while they're an inpatient, you know, to see what their opioid consumption is, evaluate even reasons for their opioid consumption as an inpatient, and then determine your post-discharge prescription based off of that.
3: Thank you. So I thought this was a, an excellent study and, as Alfred said, very, very timely. What do you say to those orthopedic surgeons that are naysayers to anti-inflammatories that are you know, concerned about spine healing and fracture healing and whatnot?
5: Our study points a few things out. I think one is it, again, supports the efforts of our anesthesia colleagues when they do advocate for multimodal an- analgesia. And I think it raises the question that we, again, need to critically really evaluate the effects of non anti-inflammatories, of non-opioid analgesia, and its, you know, implications to to really outcomes. We, as GI 4th need to provide more directed data to the procedure that we're doing, whether it's in spine surgery and looking at risks for pseudoarthrosis or fracture work. I know that some studies have been done and and there have been good meta-analyses on these topics, but again, they're focused to particular populations. And I think it, again, underscores the need for continued research on multimodal analgesia. Excellent. Thanks so much for
3: your work.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Swaroop. Our last article we'll be discussing is entitled Safely Reducing Unnecessary Radiographs in Suspected Pediatric Musculoskeletal Injuries Through a Multidisciplinary Developed Algorithm. I'm happy to say we're joined by senior author, Dr. Jim Sanders from UNC Chapel Hill, Go Tar Heels. This research was performed while he was at the University of Rochester, so that is the institution of record. In this study, the authors, who include pediatric orthopedists, emergency doctors, radiologists, and general surgeons, worked together to develop an algorithm for deciding which x-rays to order for patients in the ED with musculoskeletal injuries. After implementation, there were two less unnecessary x-rays per patient, and this was sustained over eight months of follow-up.
3: So Dr. Sanders, this is fantastic QI work, truly highlights the importance of standardization, order sets, and those systems-based approaches. Your stepwise approach and evaluating for sustainability is truly textbook work. I loved it. I have to admit, I chuckled as I as I read through your abstract and then listened to your presentation because we have the exact opposite issue at our institution. Um, you know, for any upper extremity injury All patients get is a forearm film, and it's like pulling teeth to actually get an elbow or a wrist x-ray. But what do you envision as next steps for this project?
6: Can I make a brief comment on that, Julie? Please. I think that's the difference between being at a children's hospital versus being at a general hospital, which is where I was at the University of Rochester. And the residents are used to taking care of adults. That's what they're taught to do. And in a children's hospital, everybody seems to be much more worried about x-rays, whereas that was not the case for it. So I think the next portion of it is, is this transportable elsewhere? can people begin developing this elsewhere? Is this something that we were just able to do at one spot? I don't think it is. I think it's something that you can take elsewhere. We can develop high quality protocols, we can get order sets built. And I think you could begin really creating value in the orders of the x-rays that are done that doesn't have to be confined to one geographic spot.
3: So I think this is really about as good of QI work as it gets, so what pearls do you have to offer us that that are newer in this QI world?
6: You know, it's not a whole lot that's newer. I would say that the key is really building a good team. And if you look at the people who were part of it, we had an outstanding resident, a couple of outstanding medical students. And like you mentioned, we had a really good, diverse group. And it took our adult trauma surgeons, our the radiologists, the ED docs, everybody to sit down and agree this was, first of all, an important task. Second, that they were going to come up, even if it wasn't their favorite x-rays to order, they were going to all agree upon the same one. And then it took a lot of energy of the people to actually get it done and realize if it's not working, there's probably a reason it's not working, which is what allowed us to dig into the issue that we needed to develop the order sets over time. Great.
1: Thanks, Dr. Sanders. My questions are really for us who are looking at your study and saying, wow, this is great. We want this where we are. So really, if I'm trying to integrate into my healthcare system, do you have, first question is, do you have a tip for that? And second, you've moved to UNC. Did you have to repeat the validation process at your new institution or did you just implement the protocol or is that is that a project? Can you expand on that for me?
6: I haven't even begun on the project here. Each place is its own unique spot. Each place has its own unique culture. The reason there were so many x-rays being ordered at Rochester is because of the culture that had developed there over time. We have our own issues with it here. And I don't think that simply implementing a protocol at a new place is going to work. People have to buy into it. It has to be their protocol, uh, something that they go, this matters for our patients and we're going to do it. Oh, I'm happy to take examples from somewhere else. But I think to some degree, you have to go through the process everywhere if you're really going to get a high quality project done. Great. Thank you.
0: Dr. Sanders, if you don't mind, if I jump in with a question, I think it'd be really helpful for the listeners to get an idea of how detailed this sort of algorithm is. For example, was it necessary to go through every part of every bone, essentially every musculoskeletal injury and explain what kind of x-ray to order or how detailed was it broken down in the algorithm?
6: Well, when we broke it down, we broke it down really into three various components. The first of all was, is the child able to cooperate with your exam or not? So if you have a child who comes in, they're 15 years old, they're combative, they have autism. You're not going to be able to get a good exam on them, but you can get a single extremity x-ray and you can identify at least, is there something that I need to pursue further? So it broke it down into that category first. The second was in the high energy versus the low energy, because all of us are going to recognize there's different aspects. You need pelvis films or you need femoral neck film or cervical spine film. So that portion of it differed. And the rest of it was really based upon where is the point tenderness or is the deformity. So if somebody comes in and they have a deformity of the mid shaft of the radius and the ulna, you know, you need a form. The question is, do I need to get separate films then for the elbow? Do I need to get separate films for the wrist? And in general, we made, it, we made an agreement that if you could see the joints on the first films that you got, You did not need to get subsequent x-rays if your examination was normal of those joints. And then if it wasn't, then you would do it. So it was a very broad category. And we just sort of came up, what are you most likely to miss? Well, maybe a new fracture, pretty rare in kids. Most common
0: is going to be a montasia.
6: It's identifying what are people most afraid of missing in the end and how are we going to
0: make sure that we don't miss those? That's fantastic. Makes a ton of sense. Well, thank you everyone very much for taking the time to get together and help get out the, uh, the message and the content from the POSNA annual meeting. Again, this was Julie Samora from Nationwide Children's, Alfred Mansour from UT Health in Houston, Kishore Mulpuri from British Columbia Children's Hospital in Vancouver, Cordelia Carter from NYU, Ishan Swaroop from UCSF, and Jim Sanders from UNC Chapel Hill. Thank you very much, everyone.